Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome back to Candidate Confessional, the podcast that remains very much in the middle of the iTunes rankings. Not that I've been constantly refreshing the page or anything. I'm Sam Stein, and unfortunately, my co-host Jason Cherkis is off this week, probably looking to buy another blue zip-up hoodie to add to his collection. We wish him the best. So, we did something a bit different this week. In the words of Bill O'Reilly, we did it live. And we had an incredible guest for our first live show. Former Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley agreed to talk to us about his run for the presidency this past cycle in what I believe is his first extensive interview about that experience. The event was hosted by Georgetown University, and it was co-moderated by Mo Olithi, who is the head of that school's Institute of Politics and Public Service. Now, to toot our own horn a little bit here, the interview was fantastic both for the insights that O'Malley gave on what it's like to run in the year of Bernie and Trump, to the pretty sharp condemnation he had for certain folks in his own party. So enjoy, and listen to the end to hear some original O'Malley tunes as he strums on the guitar for the enjoyment of his live viewing audience. Beyond the bluster. Behind the bunting. Past the posters. After the ads. The campaign picks up. Motorcade moves on. What happens when the votes are counted? And democracy doesn't go your way. This is Candidate Confessional, a HuffPost podcast. I'm Sam Stunn. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. Actually, I'm Sam Stunn. And I'm Jason Cherkis. And we approve this podcast. Your first job on a presidential campaign came, I believe, when you were a college student, and you volunteered uh, for Senator Gary Hart's bid for the White House. That's right. I was at Catholic University. I couldn't get into Georgetown. Well. It's true. You rejected me. So, uh, <laughs> See, for all you students, you already have a leg up. Um, I'm curious. What did you take away from that experience how, how did it shape your perceptions of politics, of campaigns? What did you learn? Sam, that, uh, and I, it's, that experience was really a, a, a door-opening experience for me. Uh, it showed me that, in fact, in states like Iowa and New Hampshire, that a person with very, very little money, personal wealth or even campaign wealth, could still climb in that little van and as long as you had gas to get from point A to point B and you had something to say, 
the people of Iowa and New Hampshire in little towns and little villages would come out and give you a listen. And on that campaign, my candidate was running in a much more crowded field than, than I found myself in this year. I think there were, what, in 1984, there were about eight candidates. And he was clearly at the lower end of the pack. Most of the news coverage was about that year's inevitable front runner, who was Walter Mondale. And that year's uh, uh, well-acknowledged uh, alternative, who was John Glenn. But on caucus night, all of a sudden, my candidate, who had been declared dead and gone and uh, hadn't a chance in the world, suddenly emerged. And Gary Hart finished second in Iowa. And that became the springboard for his becoming very, very well known in a matter of about three or four days and changed the whole contour of the latter races. So, But I'm wondering, were you personally bit by the politics bug in that moment? I, I believe I was. Um, I mean, I had worked at the, I had volunteered here in Washington in his campaign headquarters for a full year before going out to Iowa. And it really wasn't until I got out to Iowa, I coordinated Sam uh, Southeast Iowa. So the areas along the Mississippi River, Scott County and Davenport was my particular turf. And the reason the campaign gave me that county was not because it was large, which it was, but because it was totally untouched and nobody had done anything there yet. And so they kind of threw me in and said, good luck with that for the next two months. But we, uh, uh, he emerged that, uh, that evening, came in, came in second on caucus night. And I traveled with him uh, and just a f small group of other people all across Iowa. I saw him get up on the chair, give the talk, engage in the question and answer. And I saw the very uh, methodical but under the radar type of campaign that actually led first to his being everybody's second choice and then to him actually emerging as a second place finisher. And it was uh, because of that experience that I wasn't, uh, I wasn't intimidated. I knew the odds in this race, but I also knew what we were about. And we had 80 of the most committed young American men and women that I've ever had the honor to serve with. And a couple of them are here uh, tonight. And we, we organized and, um, uh, all across Iowa, and we had actually a very good organization there. We succeeded in becoming everybody's second choice. The problem was neither of their first choices would stumble and give us a lane uh, uh, to enter. And that was the ingredient that you can never predict. But we did our organizational work. And it was out of that campaign that I learned how to do that. When I came home from that experience, I worked on Barbara Mikulski's campaign while I was in law school. And, uh, uh, and, uh, and I ran for state senate. My first race, I lost by 22 votes, they tell me. They tell me. <laughs> and then I ran for city council uh, the very next year. I had no idea that a city council seat would be open, but I was able to bring the, the things I had learned from really good organizers out there in Iowa in that presidential race, I was able to bring as a 27-year-old candidate, unknown in the city of Baltimore. And I grew up in Montgomery County. Any Montgomery County people here? Around? There we go. See, you know how hard it is to get elected to anything in Baltimore if you're from Montgomery County. 
But I was able to bring those skills from that campaign to the state senate race and to the council race. And they were things that always stuck with me. They're the same skills. And uh, for all of the advances in technology, it still comes down to people talking to people, organizing, inspiring others, and uh, creating that sense of shared purpose. I, w I want to go back to that state senate race, though, for a moment. All right, this is your first foray into, into elected uh, office with your name on the ballot. You run against an incumbent in the Democratic primary, my understanding. You come so close. In fact, what I read was you actually led the votes that were cast on election day, but lost when they counted the absentee ballots. Yeah. That's pretty remarkable. Yeah, that's what they say. <laughs> the, um, the truth is we're, we're actually down 19, but I wasn't going to correct the Baltimore Sun story. <laughs> I kind of like the fact that we were up um, briefly. What do you learn about yourself in it, when you throw everything into something like that and you come so close? Uh, I'll tell you what, for about, um, uh, for about uh, a month or two, I woke up every morning thinking, wow, 22 votes, 66 precincts. That's one third of the human being per precinct. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> 22 votes. And on a good evening, with two friends with me, I could probably reach 30 people. I bet I could have converted 22 of those 30. All I needed was one more weekend. So I spent a lot of time doing that. Did anyone come up to you and say they had meant to vote for you, but, you know, we're, we're too drunk? <laughs> I, I did have a couple of people uh, that said to me, um, uh, that said, oh, I didn't know that last Tuesday was election day. Uh, and that took a lot of restraint. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that did took you, a lot uh, of restraint to say, did, yeah, did, actually it was. Uh -huh. Did you, uh, after that loss, did you think at any moment that that was it? You weren't going to be a politician? I sure did. I mean, well, honestly, you know, it wasn't, I thought that I was, I thought the piece of this that I was good at was actually organizing other people. And I thought my role was more of a behind the scenes role and I thought I would work for good candidates and I thought that's what I was best at. Uh, when Senator Hart had to drop out in 1988, it was really the, the um, it was really that moment that made me say, you know what, someday I would like to be a candidate. Others of my Why friends... Why was it that moment? I don't know, Sam. Uh, others of my friends uh, took that moment uh, and, uh, and decided to go into banking or decided never to have anything to do with politics again. Hart was the front runner in 1988, uh, had to drop out after a scandal and uh, tried to come back later but never, you know, pinball machine tilted uh, that night in Iowa. And um, uh, so, but that's... It wasn't until that moment that I said, you know what, I think I'd like to try myself. And, uh, and so that's what I did. But after that, that loss of the Senate race, sure, there were lots of days um, when I said, well, you know, at least I tried. And I'm glad I tried. And now I've got to move on with other things. I had a baby on the way. And um, I needed to find a job, which my wife kept reminding me of <laughs> every moment while I counted the 22 votes for the 13th um, time. <laughs> And, uh, 
And then the next year, a seat opened on the Baltimore City Council. I would have had no idea that a seat was going to open in that roughly same district where I had run. Uh, and then redistricting happened in the meantime, and they cut out all of my best precincts from that prior thing. And honestly, that's what convinced me, yeah, I think I do want to do this. I hadn't intended to run for city council. Even when a seat opened, I didn't want to run for city council. But when they went to the trouble to cut out my best precincts, that's when I decided <laughs> I had to run for city so, council. So you, you then go on a fairly meteoric rise, city council, mayor, governor. Uh, since we're all friends here um, and we're being candid with each other, at, at what point did the notion that you would run for president ever enter your head? And be honest, it wasn't the day before you announced. No, I, was, you know, I was raised in a family. My parents met in Washington splicing together a Young Democrats newsletter and were both Catholic. And so the election of John Kennedy was a big deal in their life. And like, uh, like many people, uh, I'm sure, of, of Catholic families in their, in their generation, you know, all of our my five brothers and sisters and I were all told each of us could be president one day. So in a sense, I guess from as long as I could remember around the dining room table or the kitchen table, my dad and my mom always, you know, we were always talking about events of the day, international events, domestic things, local politics, and the like. I really started to look at it in earnest after um, uh, re-election in 2010. Uh, I became the chair of the Democratic Governors Association, and that had me travel around the country much more than I ever had before. And, uh, and then after 2012, that's when I set up a leadership uh, uh, pack, and I started campaigning for other candidates. And my process was that I, I would... I t accepted as many invitations as I could to speak at party JJ dinners, and then I listened to what people said afterwards, you know, and I just stood in the line and listened to what was reflecting and coming back. I've, I've come to believe that the best leaders are the leaders that reflect the goodness of the people they seek to serve, and so to do that, you have to, you have to keep your ears open, and uh, so the most valuable part of those things at the, was the part of the night when I stopped talking and I got to listen to what people had to say. And the two phrases I heard again and again and again, albeit from Democratic audiences, were the two phrases, new leadership and getting things done. And, and that's, uh, uh, that's, what I, that's what I took home from those soundings. One of the, one of the things every candidate and prospective campaign has to do from the get-go as it's making this decision is assess vulnerabilities. Assess what some of the challenges are you're going to face so you can build that into your plan, into your strategy. What were some of the initial ones that you thought about as you were going through this process? The, the, biggest, challenge, the biggest challenge we saw, uh, and it remained a challenge every day, and, uh, uh, was the challenge of fundraising and raising the money. Uh, raising money as an incumbent governor is very different than raising money as a challenger for president of the United States with 1% national name recognition uh, and, and out of office. So the money was the biggest, uh, was the biggest challenge. And, and that's what we thought was, would be our greatest, our greatest, I guess you'd call it an operational mm -hmm. difficulty. Uh, there's always a certain amount of uh, instinct and guesswork that goes into uh, 
coming up with the right alchemy of language and policy and message. Uh, I'm, I'm, and uh, not sure we ever got it entirely right, uh, but uh, w we sure got we sure got close to it. In retrospect, we invested a lot of time talking about the American dream and rebuilding the American dream and all of that sort of thing. And in, in hindsight, I think a better moniker was one that the president used for a brief shining moment uh, coming out of one of his State of the Unions, which was opportunity for all. The great fear gripping America right now that your parents and grandparents can hardly bear to give voice to is the notion that they've let you down because y you might enjoy less our opportunities than they've enjoyed as Americans. And so in retrospect, I kind of wish out of the gate on the, on the message front we had done the opportunity for all. But even the fundraising, Mo, uh, that becomes a, money usually follows support. So there's a certain amount of, of creative tension that has or friction that has to happen between support on the ground, and then people see the support on the ground, and then the people you've called 10 or 20 times finally find it in their heart to take your call. Uh, so I spend about two hours a day, I don't want to overspeak, member of my former finance uh, office is here, I don't want him to throw the yellow flag of foul, but at least two hours a day, I spent calling a lot of very uh, wealthy uh, people who had been members of President Obama's finance committee who had not decided to commit to Secretary Clinton. And I was calling and courting them all along the way. If we had gotten more traction earlier in Iowa, we probably could have coaxed more of them out of their shells. But as the dynamic of the race proceeded, uh, uh, by the time uh, Vice President Biden decided to take his foot out of the pool, a lot of those finance types had decided not to get involved at all. I, I heard some of your speeches during that JJ tour that you did. Um, uh -oh. And I thought they were, I always thought they were very good. Oh, thank you. Um, but I bet you say that to all the former presidential <laughs> candidates. <laughs> Um, and one of the things you did um, when introducing yourself during this period of introducing yourself to Democrats across the country was lean heavily into your time as mayor and the results you got as mayor. And I know you're very proud of that record. One of the things we talk about here a lot at the Institute is how so many people's perceptions of politics and public life is cemented by pop culture. And you had a challenge in a lot of people viewing Baltimore through the prism of the wire. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with that and try to introduce people to the Baltimore you know and the Baltimore you presided over when that is so solidified in their minds. We have some Baltimore people whose eyes I'm looking at, right? <laughs> Grace and Brennan, right? Um, yeah, so uh, Baltimore in the back too, Baltimore here. Well, that's a problem that all of us, uh, yeah, that's a problem all of us have had to uh, labor with, I suppose. Uh, being from Baltimore. The, I ran for mayor of Baltimore in 1999 not because our city was doing well. I ran for mayor in Baltimore in 1999 because that year our city had become the most violent, addicted, and abandoned city in America. And the attitude in Baltimore was last person out, turn out the lights. 30 years of population decline that was even greater percentage-wise than the population loss in Detroit. 
in those 30 years. And so it was against that backdrop that I ran. There came, uh, shortly after I was elected, a, a true story, I pulled together all of the college presidents to say, uh, you know, how can we make Baltimore a college town where the kids who graduate from Hopkins, Loyola, and the other places actually want to stay and call it home so we can grow our population? But the college presidents had had a meeting before the meeting. <laughs> and they nominated the head of the school of uh, MICA, you know, the school of art, you know, the most liberal guy in the crowd to ask me if I would please not renew the filming permits for The Wire. <laughs> and I said, I kind of laughed it off and said, yeah, well, let's talk about College Town. And they said, no, we want to talk about you not renewing the permits for The Wire. I said, well, I don't know that I can do that. And with that, they pushed papers across the table to me and said, actually, you can. And, <laughs> and we've done our research and the date for you know, signing off on the free parking and the free police protection and all of the other freebies that you give films to come to your city comes up next year. And I said, you know, I know David Simon really well. And even if we were to do this, he would just tell me that he's taking the crew to Newark and he's going to say it's Baltimore. And, and actually, David said exactly that. Uh, when I called him to tell him what had transpired. <laughs> and I said to him, I told them you would say that. <laughs> but the bottom, for those, for those professors, I said, look, guys, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I said, when we change the reality of Baltimore, they'll change the stories they tell about us. And then we put Baltimore on a path for the biggest reductions of violent crime over the next 10 years of any major city in America. We did not make her immune to setbacks. Uh, the Freddie Gray... Uh, uh, custodial death and the, the unrest and the riot that happened afterwards. Uh, one of the most heartbreaking nights of my life. Can, can we touch on that? Sure. Because that obviously happened in the middle of this campaign and right. it obviously struck so close to home for you, literally. Yeah, a month before I ultimately announced. Right. You decided as a person who was expected, widely expected to get into the race at the time, to go home, to go to Baltimore. Can you talk about that decision and what it was like to walk through the streets as the city that you love is going through this pain? Yeah, I was in, I was in, uh, I was in England at the time. I was supposed to give a couple. I took about three months off. I'm not a wealthy person, and I took three months off to you know, give some talks and to make some money. And So I was supposed to uh, do that for a few days in, in Europe. And the very first night over there, before the clock internal clock had even reset, you know, Baltimore erupts. I'm talking to my kids on the phone. I'm hearing our mayor, you know, as the kids are holding the phone up to the TV so I can hear it. And uh, I just sat there saying, I can't believe this. Um, and pretty quickly, I said to the gentleman that was traveling with me, uh, I said, book a flight home as soon as we can. I've got to get back to Baltimore. You get to know your city very, very well, and particularly given the mission that I was elected to uh, pursue, to pull people together around, of making our city a safer place. I spent a lot of hours, a lot of evenings in the poorest neighborhoods that were the hardest hit by crime, where the greatest efforts were taking place. Every night I was at a community meeting, giving out the number for civilian review 
and talking about what the Civilian Review Board does. And so I, I knew those neighborhoods very, very intimately. So we landed, and I went ex right into the, the middle of where the uh, protests were still happening. And it was obvious to me as soon as I walked in, uh, parked a couple blocks off of Pennsylvania Avenue and just walked up, it was obvious to me that the really good people of all of the surrounding neighborhoods had taken charge of the situation. In fact, I remember talking to two uh, 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 well-respected leaders of Baltimore, both of whom were, are black, and both of whom thought that it might be a second night of things uh, of, of unrest. I said, I don't think so. That's not, what, that's not what I'm seeing. The good people are out of their homes and they're not leaving. They're not going to let that happen a second night. And indeed, they did not. Uh, and, and most, uh, uh, so I don't know if that answers your question. I think what... Um, well, was there any specific interaction that day that stuck with you? Yes. Uh, I walked in, you know, I walked in, only in retrospect did I realize it was the first time I was in, you know, walking around without an executive protection detail that I had had for 15 years. It's like the bad movie uh, Airplane, picked a, picked a bad time to give up crack. But I... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> He's not speaking literally, but yeah. No. So anyway, I just walked. I walked in. I walked into, and um, and as soon as I started walking into the crowd, I heard a young voice shout to me, "Hey, O'Malley!" And I looked up with you know, chin up, like, "Yeah, what do you got?" <laughs> And a very young man, African-American guy, um, on top of a utility box there. Uh, I looked at him like, yeah, what? And he said, you know what I've always liked about you? Your heart. You never lost it. And I went from thinking that it was a, a fight or flight moment <laughs> to realizing I was home. And uh, uh, I got a couple cat calls from uh, <laughs> from some local street pharmacist. Uh, <laughs> but I, as I said to a fellow mayor later, of course, no mayor worth their salt, you know, walks through yeah. tough neighborhoods without say, getting a couple of those. I was going to say, it wasn't, it wasn't all good, you know? <laughs> it was, overwhelmingly was. Uh, Actually, it overwhelmingly was good. Uh, there were a lot of questions. A lot of people said, Mayor, where's the mayor? Meaning the current mayor. Um, that was the most frequent question. I think most people there, Sam, were just happy to see that one of their leaders, even if he was a former, was just there in the moment. Because it really was. In every block of every hard-hit city in America, and there is no major city without its hard-hit neighborhoods. There are really good and decent, salt-of-the-earth people who have hung in there through thick and thin and look out for each other and, and, uh, and care about one another and care about their neighborhoods and go up and sweep up on the front stoop when nobody else is watching. And those were all the people that had come out. So, so actually, it was very good, uh, but there were uh, some, of the, uh, some of the international reporters 
uh, focused on the cat call from the drug dealer and made it seem like every person in the crowd was a drug dealer, uh, which was not really what went down that day. It was actually a, a very warm uh, reception. Okay. So a little bit after this, you formally declare your candidacy. Yeah, a month. And I did it in Baltimore, and I did it at noon, and I did it in Federal Hill. And it was very hot that day, I remember. Yeah. Quite hot. Um, the rationale, as I understand it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I'm probably wrong, was that you were the governor who got progressive results, that you had this record of accomplishment, whereas we had a senator who talked a lot about it, we had a former secretary of state who maybe was not considered as progressive. Was there a friction, though, at times that you were challenging the current president, President Obama, for not going far enough on things like immigration reform, for deporting undocumented children at a time when the party was sort of re-falling in love with Obama. They were very protective hmm. of his record. Did you ever sense that friction in your candidacy? I thought you were going to ask something else. Well, that we which, might still. Which shows, which shows you why Sam Stein is one of the most insightful uh, journalists. We'll keep the, that in the podcast. The Thank you. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the, uh, I didn't sense that. I mean, look... Uh, I do disagree with the president on the deportations. I think it is absolutely appalling and shameful and contrary to the best interests of our country that we now maintain the largest system of immigrant detention camps of any nation on the planet. Uh, the due process that is denied, the way we treat uh, teenagers fleeing death gangs to make it here from Central America and then we send them back to death gangs and in the meantime, we wanna pen them up in detention camps? Uh, no, I, I definitely disagree with that. Uh, I worked hard for the president's reelection. I'm very proud of his accomplishments as president. We're a better country because of many, many of the things he's done. But on that one, no, I respectfully disagree with the president. And, uh, and I hope that it gets some more play. And I hope we talk about this more in the, uh, in the general Well, let election. me ask it a different way then. Did you, you put a lot of, you put a big bet on being the bold progressive. Did you discover that, in fact, instead of progressivism, what the, part, what the party and what voters really wanted was a populist? Hmm. The, uh, well, sure. I mean, I mean, given the results that we've seen. <laughs> um, yeah. The, um, I th the phrase I heard was the phrase getting things done. I thought the yearning to get things done, I thought we would move beyond sort of being angry at the injustice of many things as they are, whether it's the gridlock on, on immigration or, or whether it's income inequality or soaring cost of college tuition. I thought we'd move past our anger and get down to the question of, all right, well, which of the three of these actually has the best shot at pulling people together to get something done on these things. And if you look at the litany of accomplishments uh, uh, in, our, uh, in, in my service, uh, they, were, they were all very difficult things, but, they were, but I got them done. Uh, so whether that was uh, pulling people together in the most violent city in America and putting them on a life-saving path, whether it was reducing incarceration rates to 20-year lows, whether it was going four years in a row without a penny's increase to college tuition, making our public schools number one in America five years in a row, on and on and on and on. I could point to all of those things. 
But people, uh, what surprised me most, I saw Vice President Gore about uh, three weeks ago at another university. I can say the name, right? What is that? University of Maryland. <laughs> I, and I saw him speak. He asked me afterwards, what surprised you most about the process? And I said, what surprised me most was not only the depth or the breadth of people's anger and frustration, but the patience of it. There's a lot of people that just want to pull in to the angry lane, park the car, and toss the keys out the window, and they ain't leaving. And I think it's true in our party, and it's also true in, in the Republican Party with a couple of strange overtones. Um, <laughs> yeah with a couple of strange overtones of xenophobia, sort of this know-nothing, you know, white America sort of stuff that rears its head every 40 years in our country. Nobody saw Donald Trump coming. We're going to get to that in a second. Because <laughs> I think you have a few things to say about him. Nobody... <laughs> but on the Democratic side, I don't think a lot of people saw Bernie Sanders coming. Yeah, there are people with a lot more political experience. And I have a, let me say, I have a great deal of respect for Senator Sanders, and I have a tremendous amount of respect for Secretary Clinton, and I consider it a great honor of my life that I'll always be able to say that I walked out on the same stage as those two fine individuals, and either of them would make a far better president than Donald Trump or Ted Cruz uh, on, their, on their least bad days. I, I think you found a friendly crowd here. But there were people with a lot more experience than I, and a lot more years in politics than I had who, who would never have predicted in April, May, or June of that year that that level of, uh, of support that Senator Sanders grew to pretty quickly and then continued to build upon would continue to go up. There were many people that said, yeah, I remember some of the, the shows in the morning with uh, the pundits saying, yeah, well, he's pretty much reached his peak at 17% in Iowa. And, uh, and, and yet, you know, then the next week he was up to 22. So I think very few people predicted that his appeal would not only last as long as it did, but would grow heading into the early conference. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people in, in my business and, 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 and the prognosticators saw you as the credible anti Clinton candidate. Now, I know that's not what you were running as. You were running as the O'Malley. Well, I was but, trying to. <laughs> but, you know, at what point did you notice, right, that these people who were saying he's reached his peak were wrong? Like, uh, did you see it? Did you feel it out there? Did you feel him sh slingshotting past mm, you? The, um, uh, the, um, sh I, I guess, um, I guess by the end of, of the summer and uh, after that first debate or two, it became pretty clear that this was not, that his uh, candidacy uh, w was not waning. It was at least going to hold with where it was. And um, yeah, so that, yeah, that became, uh, that became clear. Uh, there were times when when I sensed it was starting to dip, people had been to see him a couple of times, and, 
uh, and, and he tended not to do the questions and answers that are part of the culture of running in the Iowa caucuses. But, uh, but ultimately, he had the money to sustain it. So at the very moment that he seemed to be waning in those late, you know, the summertime, uh, he was able to go on the air shortly thereafter, something we were never able to do. So you took a page from your uh, mentor, uh, Senator Hart, and stuck to the I'm going to shake hands with every voter type of campaign. I'm going to win them over one by one. And I think, judging by you sitting here, that it didn't work. And I'm one. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I have two questions, one a broad one and then one a very specific one. The broad one is, having been through this ringer, do we now have a campaign climate where this method is doomed to failure, where you have to have a national presence or a major fundraising apparatus or be on the press, the media all the time, in order to succeed? No, I don't think so. I think every year's different. And I think most people who have watched this for a long time, I mean, uh, you guys have probably had these conversations with men and women in your profession to kind of throw up their hands and say, yep, never saw this one coming on either side. This is totally different than any other year. I uh, wish I had a dime for every person that has said to me, wow, this was a really different year. Uh, so I, I think that, that so much is timing uh, in, in politics. And, and in these times, it's, uh, uh, this race has been, has been so far characterized by people wanting to express their fear on the one side and their anger on the other side. Uh, but I don't think that that means that the one-on-one -on -one contact and, and that way of campaigning is, is a, an antique of the past. In other words, Sam, uh, I mean, I do think um, by the end of the calendar year, we were just starting to kind of couple of poles, tap the bottom of the net to use a basketball analogy. <laughs> we were hitting like 10% in two polls right before Christmas. In fact, my wife asked me, what do you want for Christmas? I said, two more points. Please, just, <laughs> please give me up to double digits so I can then go back and raise the dollars necessary to put the, uh, to do the commercials. But we never got it. We never, uh, coming out of Christmas, we, we got uh, consumed and I was never able to get it up over, over the rim. Had we been able to do that though, uh, had the debates not been 
delayed as long as they were. That was unprecedented this we were, year. We're going to get to those and debates. And then the limited numbers <laughs> of the debates. I had not counted on that. I thought that we would start debating at the same time as the Republicans. Uh, but it was a long delay. And then in between time, the current vice president uh, put his foot in the pool. Sure. And that also made the fundraising harder. So there's always an interplay. So I think in another time for another candidate, uh, the, the, the people of Iowa are still open. They still like to upset the apple cart, but, but it just wasn't this year. Before we get to the debates, uh, the quick specific question I wanted to talk about was uh, one of my favorite anecdotes from the trail, which is a snowstorm hits Iowa. No one is going out, <laughs> except for you. <laughs> you decide you're going to go to your event, <clears throat> regardless of how many inches this of snow on the ground. This is not a solo decision. All right, well, well <laughs> you're going to explain this to us. But for the audience, what happens is you show up at your event, and there's one man there, just one, and you talk to him, and you try to work him, and ultimately he leaves undecided. So... <laughs> Tell us about what went into the decision and about that meeting itself. We had about seven events scheduled in Iowa. And so I fly out. I get there just ahead of a lot of bad weather. And then the bad weather hits, and it's the most snow they've had in a long, long time. Uh, and um, my ABLE campaign staff, you know, we're the underdogs, right? We have to show. We try harder. We're Avis. We're hungry. We're lean. We'll go anywhere to talk to an Iowa caucus voter. My, so I'm, I'm, I wake up in the morning, and uh, there's a whole lot of snow on the ground. And you can't kind of see the road or the, or the middle lanes. And I said, uh, so what are we going to do today instead? And my guy, Jake Othat in Iowa, says, we're going to do every event. And we're going to be the only presidential campaign that does any, every event. And people in Iowa are going to love it. I said... If we do all seven events, and folks, this was not a matter of just going around the Des Moines Beltway. These were events all over the place. I said, if we make every event, we will see probably like a total of 20 people today. And he said, yeah, and it's 20 more than any presidential campaigns <laughs> going to see. So we went all day. And at one point at night when it came, there was like snow blindness and Jake's driving, and I'm sitting there and watching the road and you can't see the road and we're going through you know the we're going through fields and supposedly there's a road there and i'm thinking wow this is really fascinating they must teach them how to do this in iowa how to drive on the road when you can't even see the road and i turned to jake i said jake what's the secret how is it that you're able to stay on the road if you can't see it? And he turned to me white-knuckled, and he says, I've never seen it this bad before. I have no idea. <laughs> so we call ahead to the final, final event of the day, and I over-predicted. We probably saw 17 people in seven events that day. But we call into the last. I said, "Call. are we still doing this? Yeah, we've got to do the last event. We're already on our way back to Des Moines. I said, great. How many people are there? Three. Jake talks to the person. He hangs up. And he says, there's one. And his name was Kenan. And he was really excited to see me. And we spent a good half hour together. And while it is true, Sam, that he did not commit that night, he left uncommitted. I called him the next day at 2 p.m. And uh, 
he committed to me on the phone to caucus for me. And to the best of my knowledge, information and belief, he did. Uh, <laughs> and he also was kind of funny about it. He said, look, and I don't want anything from you except to be ambassador to the Netherlands. <laughs> and that's Iowa. That's how it works. Okay, I want to make sure we have enough time for student questions, but we have a few more. Um, uh, Sam talked about one of his favorite moments of the campaign. Let me talk about one of mine. Uh, as you know, uh, before coming here, I worked at the Democratic National Committee, and I was involved in some of the early conversations about the debates. You and your campaign voiced displeasure with the debates, uh, even more so after I left, uh, with the actual schedule when it was set. One of, my, one of the more memorable moments for me was the summer DNC meeting in Minneapolis. Uh, and you going to the podium, feet away from the chair of the DNC, uh, and delivered a stem winder of a speech going after the DNC for the debate schedule. So I have two questions. One, in that moment, talk about the the, the decision to do that speech and how it felt. And secondly, more broadly, do you believe that the DNC had its thumb on the scale and that the system was rigged against you as a candidate? Yeah, I wouldn't say the DNC, but I would say the chair because it was a unilateral decision by the chair and only the chair. And when people started to ask questions about in that meeting about who made the decision, uh, they were ruled out of order and sit down and it's time for the benediction and there was no discussion of it. So do I believe, uh, 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 do I believe that it was done by the chair? Yes, I believe it was done by the chair. The chair said it was done by the chair. Uh, and some people in my own organization, uh, when we went back and did our little after action after the campaign was over, um, one of my trusted advisors said, on that day when they came out with the schedule and said there'd only be four debates and that most of them were going to be on Saturday or Sunday nights, you know, hidden by NFL playoff games or the like, that's when I knew our goose was cooked. Because you can't, as a challenging candidate, um, you, have to, you have to depend on the free media, if you will, or what are we supposed to call that, Aaron? Earned media. Um, and we were, as part of our strategy to emerge and break through, uh, we were counting on those debates, at least starting at the same time that the Republicans started. And I think it was a great disservice to the Republic, actually, that we let that uh, immigrant bashing, carnival barker, fascist demagogue Donald Trump have full run of the airwaves. And he grew, he grew into a phenomenon over those summer months uh, while we heard nothing from the Democratic Party. And even when we did start debating, we didn't debate in prime time. We debated in a cynical way on Saturday nights or Sunday nights or opposite Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Frosty the Snowman the week before Christmas. And it was appalling. You know, it's enough for the success of evil that good people... Uh, uh, simply remain silent. And at a critical time, our party remained silent. Uh, and yes, it was bad for my candidacy and, and my hopes, but I think it was, uh, more importantly, it was bad for the country. And hopefully the party won't, 
won't repeat that again. We should be organizing. We should have an offense that does things like going state by state uh, to uh, uh, pass resolutions in support of a a constitutional right to vote, uh, constitutionally to overturn Citizens United and declare affirmatively that corporations are not people. Those are the things that a more functional party does at a time when the country appears to be flirting with taking a detour into a, becoming a security state for four years. Joe, just for the record, when you mentioned Donald Trump, everyone applauded. I assume you're all Trump supporters here. Is that it? <laughs> no, that's not it? We have very, very little time left. So why don't we do just a few rapid questions, if we may. And, and then, then we're going to go to students, And then right? students, yes, cool. yes, yes. Good. So it all comes to a head in Iowa. At what point did you know you weren't going to win, honestly? It all comes to head and tails in Iowa. <laughs> uh, the, um, well, every day you wake up thinking that something unexpected might happen, right? Uh, Maybe. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Every day you wake up thinking that something unexpected might happen. But by the time, uh, by the, time the final weekend got there and those last few days... Uh, I had a sense that we weren't going to get, I had a very clear sense we weren't going to get above threshold. There was a Twitter picture that was uh, uh, sent out, a friend of mine took uh, and tweeted it out. It was from across the headquarters, and it was my daughter Tara talking to me, and it was at the very moment I said to her, honey, we're not getting threshold tonight, and the pinball machine's going to tilt. And explain what threshold means. Threshold, you have to get 15% in order to get anything in the Iowa caucuses. So if you get... 10% or 11% or 14% or, or anything less than 15% <laughs> in any precinct. I mean, the precinct chair quickly kind of tells but, your people, look, O'Malley people, you don't have threshold and you've got to go someplace else. Now, we encouraged our people hold strong. Yeah, why did you do that? Uh, well, in some of the precincts, notably because of how fearlessly, even without any paid media, how fearlessly we spoke to the dignity of every person, the common good we share, and the imperative for our national good of comprehensive immigration reform and an end to these immigrant detention camps. We had a lot of Latino people in Iowa uh, who actually came out and were very solidly in my corner. And in those few places where we actually did reach threshold, it was because of those families who held strong when they felt they were voiceless and nobody saw them. And uh, you asked me why I did it, why we said hold strong rather than throw to one of the other candidates and ingratiate them, uh, myself to them. Because look, man, I'm a candidate. I wasn't running to be secretary of widgets or anything else, <laughs> you know? And I intended to hold strong. And, and frankly, uh, uh, there, was a, there was a chance that um, if... Uh, some of the other campaigns had given different orders to their generals or been better organized, uh, that the ultimate outcome might have been different, and we might have actually hit threshold in more places. There you go. So my last question is, um, it's a two-parter. One is, what did you learn from this experience? Oh, I hate that. The what did you learn and, question. Well, maybe you'll like the I second. I should have gone into banking in 1984. Oh, yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Don't do that. Uh, and then... And then the second part is, would you ever do it again? Uh, well, that depends on when I figure out what I've learned. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the, um, 
I'm, I will probably, uh, I'm still kind of unpacking what I learned, Sam, honestly. Uh, I, the, um, and, and in terms of whether or not I would do it again, uh, there, is a, there was a, my son William was with me when in the last couple of days, and we were hearing this phrase a lot in Iowa. And, and in fact, I'm very popular in Iowa. I don't know if you checked the latest <laughs> polls. But, but we've made a lot of good friends there. We had a good organization. Um, but a person said at the, to, in the last couple of days, we were coming out of one of the coffee shops, and my son was with me, who, and William was out there, die-hard, uh, ride-or-die guy. And a, a gentleman shook my hand and said, Governor O'Malley, you've got to promise me that you'll run again. And I said to him, no. <laughs> <laughs> William said, it is like volunteering for a second waterboarding before the first one's done, <laughs> isn't it? So who knows what the future holds? What I do know, what I, did, what I learned, um, what I learned in, in this campaign is, um, what I learned in this campaign is that there is a, a, a breadth and a depth and a level of anger, fear, and frustration in our country uh, that is very, very real, and we need to address it, and we, and we need to address it politically, folks. I mean, it's not like, you know, it's not like Tinkerbell's going to come in here and wave the unity wand, and all of a sudden we're going to move on, and we've got to figure out a way to, to talk with each other, because whenever a nation reaches a point in her history where wealth and power are so concentrated as they are now in our country and the hands are so few that it's taking opportunity out of the homes and the neighborhoods of the many, there's only two paths forward. And only one of them's good. You know, that path is a sensible rebalancing based on the common good that we share and an understanding that we're all in this together. That in fact, making college more affordable for more of our people isn't something we're doing just for kids that are going through college now. It's something that's good for, for our whole economy. It's good for our country. The stronger we make our country, the more opportunities we can give our kids. Because the other path, uh, the other path leads to simply more anger, more fear, more division, more rocks, more stones. A lot of the people that are expressing their, their anger in our party, and a lot of those flocking to Trump's banner, and with all of its fear and division in their party, actually do have a lot in common with the people in those little neighborhoods in Baltimore who felt like many of them felt that it's not getting any better for me. In fact, it's only getting worse. And, um, and that's something that we need to, that we need to address and, and that we need to fix as a people. It is, uh, it's very real and it's, uh, and it's very deep. And, and sadly, uh, I've, it's been my experience so far that it's also uh, it's also uh, very patient in that people don't want to talk about solutions right now. They feel almost as if uh, uh, they feel that the current leaders uh, aren't capable of bringing about solutions and that gridlock or breaking it all together might be better than returning the same people to office. Let's now actually get to the interesting questions. And because we're doing this for the podcast, Sam uh, and I will repeat your question for the tape, and then, uh, Governor, if you'll, you'll answer one. So, who's got a question? Let's go in the way back, dead center way back. 
So, so just to sum up the question, uh, what drives most people to run? Is it an actual belief that they are going to win and become president, or is it, for some, uh, the chance to shape the dialogue in the debate? Yeah, I, it's, it's hard for me to answer for the other candidates. I mean, I, I can tell you that for my part, I mean, I got to a, a place where I not only felt that I, I could win, I felt that I had to win. I felt that our country was on the verge of tearing itself apart. And when I watched Baltimore erupt uh, that night, uh, I, of course, one conclusion from that could be that, that uh, these events have complicated in an irredeemable way a story of progress and getting things done for me, for my candidacy. The other way was rather than looking at that in terms of what it meant for me personally and for me in a personal political way, was to ask what it meant for us, our country, in a political sense, for our common good. And um, so I got to a point in my head when I, by the time I announced that it was not only something that I, where I felt I could win, I felt that I had to win. And I threw myself into it with all of the energy I had and, uh, and did everything I possibly could to try to open up that lane of possibility. Uh, because I felt, I concluded in my own party, looking at the, the five of us and very quickly the three of us, I felt that I had the best shot at pulling us together. You know what the most popular question was that people asked in all the little luncheonettes in the last few weeks of the campaign? It was, how are you going to heal the divisions in our country? How are you going to bring us together? Sometimes it was worded, if President Obama couldn't do it, how will you? I mean, that was the, and I felt, I got to a place where I felt I had a much better shot than either of the other two. Therefore, not only could I win, I had to win. And that's how I threw myself into it. All right, let's take another question. We're going to go uh, girl boy, girl boy. So um, why don't you go? So the question is, what from your Jesuit high school experience shaped your values, and what values do you think from overall our leaders could take and use to their advantage? Yeah, the, um, I went to high school uh, just uh, across town here at Gonzaga College High School, Jesuit High School. And um, those were very formative years for me, those four years. And I have found myself uh, again and again and again returning to touchstones that I think I came to understand. I mean, my parents, I think, had already inculcated those things in me. Uh, the, the, the teachers I had and the nuns I had, Sisters of St. Francis and Our Lady of Lords and Corporal Works of Mercy and all of those things. But I came to uh, the touchstones for me that I've always come back to in public service. I think I came to understand at Gonzaga. Um, every day, we would, many of us would come in from mostly lily-white suburbs all around Washington, and we'd walk up High Street. And in the basement of St. Aloysius Church, every morning, there was a long line of men, almost all of them black men, homeless, waiting to get their first and perhaps only meal of the day at the uh, soup kitchen there that Father Horace McKenna ran. And Father McKenna, it became very obvious to all of us, even as in the second week at Gonzaga, that this guy was the spiritual giant of the community there. And Father McKenna's example, his ability to look for Christ in the face of others, his willingness to put himself in the heart of suffering and, and pain 
and, and loss um, was a very powerful example for me. And the touchstones that I've always returned to are, this, are really the pillars of, of uh, Catholic social teaching, a belief in the dignity of every person, a belief in the common good that we share and that each of us has a responsibility to protect and advance, and an understanding that we're all in this together, that we need each other here, uh, that, um, that there's no such thing as a spare American, and uh, that each of us matters, and that every life matters. These are the things I've always found myself returning to, and I believe that those, I know, in fact, that those were things that I learned at a Jesuit institution. At least I learned to give voice to them and action. Anyone else? We're going with a girl here. I don't want to misquote. I believe the question was, what is your ideal cabinet position and why? <laughs> well, ever since I was a little boy, <laughs> I have uh, come to know and love the living systems of the Chesapeake Bay, the great blue heron, the osprey, the crabs, the terrapin diamond-backed. <laughs> and so the ideal cabinet position for me would be secretary of the Maryland Department of Natural Resources. <laughs> Well done. And let the record reflect that question came from a student, not from our cynical journalist up here. I once, I once even told the, the cabinet, I said, you know, one of these days we're going to do what they do in corporate America, where we each take the job of the person to your left. And I would say to John Griffin, I'm taking your job for a moment. <laughs> Love it. Okay, next question. Let's go right here. So the question is, uh, as a former head of the Democratic Governors Associations, looking at the challenge the party is having winning governor's races these days, what advice would you give uh, to the party and to future gubernatorial candidates so that they can actually start winning again? Yeah, I believe that our party, our entire party, and this goes beyond Dana Malloy, who I know, it's beyond the ability of, of, of whoever the current chair of the Democratic governors is. Uh, our whole party needs to come to a better understanding and appreciation demonstrated in the actions and the investments we make that state houses matter. We are not going to get back the House of Representatives and make it again representative until we get back the power of the pen that draws those districts. And we could do it in a couple of ways. Yes, we should have bipartisan redistricting commissions. That'd be another good offensive play for a functional Democratic Party to run. Um, but we, we've got to win back some governor's seats. We went from having 30 Democratic governors on the eve of President Obama's first congressional um, uh, midterms also happened to be redistricting. And we went from having 30 Democratic governors down to only having 20 Democratic governors. And as a result, in many states with big Democratic populations, Florida, Michigan, Pennsylvania, they returned lopsided uh, delegations to the House of Representatives, and then nothing gets done. So, uh, and yet, among our national donors and people that are the sorts that can raise money and have networks of friends that can contribute. Uh, many of them will tell you on the phone when you call them, oh, I don't, I don't do governor's races, as if governor's races are somehow below them or state house races are below them. The Republican Party has been very methodical. Uh, the Koch brothers and, and everybody else have been very methodical about taking out state houses one by one by one, taking back governor's offices 
And when we were all celebrating after President Obama's election that we were going to have Democratic majorities for decades and decades, they took all of these state houses from us and saddled him with the most obstructionist House of Representatives any president's had. So as a party, we need a 50-state strategy. And we need to start strategically uh, and tactically winning back state houses. Uh, and, uh, and we need to act like a party uh, in order to do that. All right. Let's go right here. So the question, if I, if I got it right, is you're seeing lopsided turnout in the caucuses and the primaries with far more people turning out for Republican contests than for Democratic contests. What can the Democratic Party do to, to goose turnout and create that kind of same energy to be competitive with the Republicans? Yeah. The, um, it's, a, it's a real, that's our work for the general election. And it's a, and it's a real challenge. Their side seems to be more energized than, uh, than our side is. Um, it has been my experience that people, that our people have to understand and really be able to see themselves in a, in a story that leads to their kids enjoying better lives. And if we don't tell that story, if we content ourselves with the old sort of uh, approach of most democratic media consultants, stick cooling rods in your opponent's head and make him or her more unattractive. Uh, I think we're, we're in grave danger of, of uh, losing this election in the general. We have to tell the story that America is, in fact, the greatest job-generating, opportunity-expanding engine that uh, free people have ever brought forward on this earth. But we have not been putting the fuel in that tank in order to make our country move forward. And we need to. Uh, and you've heard many of these things before. We need to get wages to go up and not down. We need a new workers' bill of rights for the 21st century. Our economy is not money. It's people. It's all of our people. And no family that works hard to be able to send their kids to college should have to saddle them with a lifetime of debt. Uh, these are to govern is to choose. We need to make choices that actually grow our middle class, that give our kids more opportunities than we've had. And I think we need to tell that story and not fall into the trap of thinking that somehow we can make Donald Trump, their nominee, if he's their nominee, less attractive by somehow saying that he's poison. Quick moderator's privilege here. Just a small follow-up, because what you're saying, and we'll do this quickly because I don't want to take away from the students, what I hear you saying is that you're of the camp of Democrat who believes that Donald Trump might appeal to some of those disaffected, Rust Belt, white working class voters that Democrats could get, and that this election isn't necessarily a shoe in if he ends up the general election nominee. Oh, I, I, are, are there camps on this? There yeah, are. I definitely, I, I've been, uh, haven't been following the camps, but I was out there in the middle of the jury pool. And I believe that the level of anger in our country is such that yes, uh, that this is not a slam dunk. There's a certain smugness inside the Beltway in Washington. Uh, and uh, so I, I think we have our work cut out for us. Uh, this could be a very, very defining moment in the life of our republic. And, and I think that we have our work cut out for us in the general. I apologize to the students for taking that question. I think we're up for a male question. Can't give the intro or a question. Jeez, we can't get the whole thing. Go ahead, back there. So the question is, why, oh, why would you choose this wretched profession of politics over the law, 
over a nonprofit or any other form of service? Well, they, my, my parents raised us to believe that politics is actually a noble calling and a service. And, and it might not be a career for very many people. Probably shouldn't be. In fact, right now I'm looking for work. Um, <laughs> the, um, but my parents taught us that the politics and public service is actually a noble calling and that the only thing wrong with it is that not enough good people try. And I, and I believe that more firmly today than I ever have. I was a prosecutor right out of law school for a couple of years, and I was in the Western, but my last tour there, I spent my last eight months there in the Western District, you know, where the wire was filmed, where Freddie Gray lost his life right in the heart of uh, some of the hardest hit neighborhoods. And it was partly out of that frustration of being in the courtroom every day and not seeing things change but seeing them getting worse that led me to believe that we needed some political solutions here. We put too much on the backs of prosecutors or courts or, or police. And, um, and so that's, uh, it was partly out of that frustration, I guess, that I, I decided to run uh, at, at that point. I had had the seed of it after, as shared with Sam, after Hart's uh, uh, ignominious withdrawal. Um, and then I was getting ready to get out altogether after serving two terms on the city council, because by then I had four kids. Excuse me, three kids. Um, not yet a fourth. And I moved my little tiny law practice, which I maintained while I was on the city council. You could do both. Uh, and I moved out to Towson. I was in a firm with other people, was trying jury trials. Life was good. But then nobody who could step up to do what needed to be done to turn our city in a more life-saving direction would do it. And I told my wife after a few painful mornings of waking up and looking at myself in the mirror, and uh, I kept talking myself out of running for mayor. I said, you can't do that. You're white. The city's majority black. This is silly. This is stupid. You can't do this. And I succeeded in talking myself out of it about three or four days. And then one morning, perhaps because of some clarity that came to me in the night, <laughs> which I wasn't even conscious, I realized that that conclusion was every bit as racist as saying, you know, uh, I can't run because those people wouldn't be fair enough to consider my candidacy. And, um, and so I tried. And that's what drew me back into it. So some of those things are circumstances. Some of them are grace working upon your goodwill in conjunction with circumstance. But all of it comes down to an intention. And it's really the goodness of your intention, I think, that you should go with. If you're inclined to be involved in politics, I encourage you to do it, man, all of you who are here, because your country and your world's never needed you more. We're at a, we're at a very transformative time. And... Um, and you're in the greatest country on the planet to affect the sort of change that needs to happen. So I hope you all will consider running. This world needs you. That was former Governor Martin O'Malley discussing his presidential campaign from just this past year. A huge thanks to Georgetown University for hosting the event, our very first live show, and... Hopefully, not the last. Huge thanks, as always, to Christine Canetta for editing the podcast and 
You can find Candidate Confessional on iTunes or at thehuffingtonpost.com. Tune in next week when we talk to Carl Castle. No, not the NPR guy. We're talking about Carl Castle from Alaska, who, out of 10,000 votes cast, lost his race for the statehouse by a mere four. Just brutal. Now, before we leave this podcast, one quick note about O'Malley. He likes to play the guitar. He did it often on the campaign trail, and he did it again during our interview. So let me leave you all with some sweet, velvety tunes from the former governor. Until next time, happy trails. Without fear in your heart. Very good. And feel, feel like you still have a choice. If we all light up, we can scare away the dark. And oh, 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 oh. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.